Welcome to the President's Career Podcast. The PCP is a podcast brought to you by WNJ's Office of Career Services and is meant to help spotlight everything related to your career. Today is a special episode. This episode will be part one of a two-part series going over the grad school panel held earlier this year by the Office of Career Services and hosted by Mr. Berta Cross. These two episodes will go over a wide range of topics relating to grad school. So if you're considering continuing your education after WNJ, you should pay close attention. Why even go to grad school? Why would we do this? There's actually a number of reasons that people have to go to graduate programs. In some cases, they need a graduate degree for some specific career path. For example, you want to become a uh, college professor or university professor of English literature, you're going to need a PhD in English literature uh, or a very comparable program. Uh, In some cases, people are just desiring to continue the heady experience of the intellectual life of college, or they want an extra year or two to work on their own writing. A number of people will get an MFA in either writing or in the fine arts of some kind because it gives them time to get writing and work done. Uh, In some cases, uh, people are just delaying entering the workforce. uh, And so they go off and they go to graduate school rather than go out and get a job. And uh, you frequently see that happening when the economy tanks. A lot of people go to graduate school because it's something constructive to do that might actually be useful. Well, something that I'll add for sort of the chem biophysics and everything in between there, so biochemistry and neuroscience sort of world, uh, the types of jobs that you can get in industry are very different depending on the degree that you have. Uh, If you're at the bachelor's level, basically those are folks who like doing bench work and they don't mind if somebody else is telling them on a day-to-day basis what experiments are going to be conducted. Uh, If you want more creative control over the direction of research, then that usually means going on typically for a PhD. Uh, A master's, you know, puts you somewhere in limbo in between the two. Um, But the the master's is not as commonly utilized in chem biophysics anymore as as it used to be. Now, most of psychology falls in the particular career path. If you want to be someone who counsels people, you, you are going to need a graduate degree. The type of graduate degree varies depending on whether you want to be able to do other things. So if you want to be able to teach at a college or university, as Dr. Truce said, you need PhD. If you want to be in practice, then you potentially only need a master's degree. You don't necessarily need a PhD to be in practice. So okay. How is graduate school different from college? Yeah, so again, sort of tailoring my comments to the chem biophysics world and all the in-betweens. One of the major differences is that in college, you take an aggregate of courses and at the end of four years, you know, you have a major and you have a lot of experience in other areas as well. Graduate school is far more focused. Um, In these fields, you're typically gonna have a year or two of coursework. That coursework is all gonna be in your area of study. And sometimes it gets really specific. So for instance, all my PhD coursework was actually in various aspects of organic chemistry, not even in other areas of chemistry. Now that's not universally true. Some schools have you take courses more broadly within your field of chemistry, and that's a difference in educational philosophy. 
but you're going to spend a whole lot of time doing something other than coursework. Uh, usually for a PhD, you're acquiring new knowledge. Uh, so you're basically working on experiments that have not been done before, and you're trying to push the envelope scientifically. And you have probably on average about five years spent in the laboratory doing that until you have a complete story to tell. Uh, another major difference is that you are tied to one faculty member far more closely than you are during your undergraduate education. You're going to be working in one faculty member's laboratory and therefore the selection of that faculty member becomes tremendously important because some people end up on good projects or they have very good hands and they get a lot of papers. And if that's the case, that's wonderful. Nobody can ever take that away from you. But good people end up on bad projects. And in those cases, you really need to have an advisor who's willing to go to bat for you. And if the person is not willing to go to bat for you, it has ramifications for your future that are pretty tangible. Uh, so those are some of the critical differences. The business about being tied to an advisor is very uh, true also in the humanities, but that won't happen until about halfway through graduate school. Uh, generally in a field like English or history or any of the liberal arts, you'll be spending about half your time in coursework, uh, which will not, which you'll recognize. It's, uh, it'll be courses within the field uh, with different professors. It's when you get to the uh, dissertation stage, that's when you become very much tied to an advisor. And I've seen a number of people have wonderful experiences because they got a good advisor uh, or they've had terrible experiences because their advisors are off doing other things. Uh, I had a particular difficulty with an advisor who uh, retired partway through. And so I had to find sort of sub subsidiary advisors to work with on campus because my, my advisor ended up moving to Paris. Uh, but it worked. It just, you had to improvise a little bit. So psychology, if we're talking about PhD programs, you're sort of halfway in between the two. Typically, you're going to end up working with someone from the beginning, but you, a lot of programs will have, you'll have more than one advisor. You may have the opportunity to get involved in multiple people's research. So there's a little more flexibility. There are some places that operate the way Dr. Trush was just describing humanities programs. So you come in and it's mostly coursework. And then as you move to a dissertation, you get an advisor, it really, it's gonna depend a little bit on what model the graduate school is operating on. But a lot of PhD programs operate on sort of an apprenticeship kind of model is the way that they think of it. Master's programs tend to be more likely to be coursework based. Um, you may be working with faculty, but it may not be as closely as in a PhD program. Super. Um, Dr. Truce, how about if we come back to you to start a conversation about what types of schools offer postgraduate degrees? Okay, well, first of all, there's a couple of different kinds of postgraduate degrees to be thinking about. You're going to have to make two decisions, one of which is what kind of a degree are you going to get? And the next question is actually which school you would actually go to get it. So you got to think about, do I need a master's degree? Do I need a doctoral degree if I'm or do I need just a certificate which is like a made up thing that doesn't really sound quite as it doesn't really certify you to do anything much of the time but sometimes it does uh, some of the degrees will be sort of technical professional degrees usually at the master's level 
Uh, some of them will be much more research-oriented degrees, more likely at the doctoral level. Different schools can have different kinds of doctoral degrees even. For example, let's say you go into a school of education, uh, you might get a, doctor, a doctorate of education. That's not really interchangeable with a PhD degree from a college of arts and sciences. So there's a, you gotta do a lot of research about what kind of a degree are you getting and what you need needed to do at the other end. Once you kind of know what degree you're looking for, then you need to start thinking about where might you want to go pursue that uh, education. Uh, it used to be in the old days, there were the good old bricks and mortars universities where you would go and you'd sit in the class and you'd be face to face. In the current climate, climate, those schools are doing things remotely the way we've been doing at WNJ, in fact, and probably will be continuing to do that for another year. Uh, a number of places always had online degrees, uh, which never had any coursework or else they were very low residency programs where you'd come in for a weekend every six months or so. And a number of those actually run asynchronously. They've actually got all the courses kind of programmed in and you work your way through and you might meet just once a week with an advisor or, or the professor or some kind of a, a learning facilitator of various kinds. So you have to choose between, uh, are you gonna go to the town, to the graduate school and sit in the classroom? Are you interested in a program that is going to be predominantly or entirely online? Or do you want something that blends a little bit in a kind of low residency program? And different fields will be using these a little bit differently. So Beth, do you want to pick up from there and talk more about the types of postgraduate degrees? Um, I can do that. I'm going to say a, a moment about thinking about yeah. what types of schools you want. Mm -hmm. One of the, particularly since we have a number of people thinking about psychology and counseling, you want to think about the connection between the kind of degree that you want to get and what you want to do with it and the form in which it's offered. I know Dr. Crabtree has people doing internships in his office because he has a private practice. And he, every now and then these days, gets an inquiry about doing an internship with him from someone whose degree is entirely online. And it's not clear with an entirely online counseling degree whether you've actually ever had any practical experience the way you would if you were in a face-to-face -face program, bricks and mortar or even a low residency provided it has chunks of time as opposed to the occasional weekend. If you're there for you know, several weeks during the summer, for example, there's a little bit more of that. So you wanna just think about that. To start off online programs makes sense if you're entirely online programs, if you're thinking about counseling. So when you go to pick a kind of degree, it depends a little bit on what you wanna do. So as I said earlier, if your interest in psychology is in counseling, there are degrees that are master's degrees that let you be licensed to be in private practice in any state in the union. Um, so you can take that approach if you really wanna be able to teach or if you just really want a PhD because that seems like a good thing, um, you can go and get a PhD. You have to have one to teach Every now and then I have an advisee who wants a PhD just because they've always wanted to have a PhD. <laughs> In case, apply for a PhD. There are a number of different um, ways that one does doctoral programs. So sometimes 
when you apply to a PhD program, it's set up so that you get, you're just getting a PhD. Sometimes it's set up so that you get a master's degree, typically at the end of the coursework phase um, as sort of a, a step along the process. It also gives, gives programs a way to sort of have the consolation prize if you decide not to go on or if the program decides you're not appropriate for continuing for a PhD, they can give you a master's degree at that point. Um, I got a master's degree as part of my PhD program because I got a letter saying, if you want a master's degree, send the registrar $15. So I sent the registrar $15 and they sent me a master's degree. Um, it was halfway through. I just you did not break stride with your study. You just continued, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I had just finished my master's thesis, my qualifying exams, and so I was moving on then to doing the PhD. Some master's programs are freestanding. For example, in psychology, the kinds of degrees that will let you be in private practice are often freestanding. They're not connected to a PhD program. Master's programs are much less likely to come with funding. There may be kinds of funding available, but they may not be. But as a consequence, a lot of master's degrees, particularly if they're gonna take you to a career goal, are often set up so that you can complete them while you are working on the assumption that you are going to want to be working because you wanna be able to pay for school. And so often master's programs of that type will have evening and weekend courses. And on the assumption that during the day, you are probably engaged in some sort of employment. So you wanna look at how programs are structured right. if you're thinking about a master's degree. There are PhD programs. WVU has one in psychology, for example, that doesn't actually accept people directly into the PhD program you have to go through the master's program. And then at the end of the master's program, you can apply to the PhD program, but they don't accept people who don't have a master's degree yet into the PhD program. So okay. things like that can happen. Um, mm -hmm. Some degree programs like the master's in fine arts to some extent is about developing transferable skills developing one's writing, critical thinking, project management, researching, those sorts of things, which are useful in a wide number of ways beyond just what the degree's title is. Uh, so I would say similarly to what Dr. Bennett said, it's more common to apply to PhD programs in the chem biophysics world, uh, largely because of funding. Master's programs typically aren't funded, PhD programs are. If you don't like it, uh, you can master out or take the compensatory masters in a similar fashion. Um, you know, beyond that, are we sort of transitioning into choosing schools as well yeah. at this point? Okay, so, you know, something that I would say that's absolutely critical about choosing schools, not just the program, is that you look at faculty in your area of interest and you make sure that there are at least three, four different people that you could see yourself working with because there are things that aren't obvious as an applicant that can become huge problems later on. Maybe a certain faculty member is the most popular faculty member and everybody wants to get into that research group. And so maybe it's difficult to get in. 
maybe that faculty member lost their funding and so they can't take people that year. Uh, there could be all kinds of snags down the road. So you wanna make sure that you know the schools you're applying to have an array of faculty that you could see yourself potentially working for. Um, okay, super. Beth or Linda, do you wanna add more on cho how, choosing a grad school? Yeah, uh, in the humanities, it's become increasingly common for people to apply for a master's degree and then shop around uh, for a new call, a new program for the PhD program if they go there. Uh, the master's has become much, much more popular, I think partly because it is a more of a money-making venture for the universities. Uh, but it also doesn't require you to really know quite so much what you're doing when you're applying. Uh, you don't have to have picked a field of study particularly. You really do need to have that straightened out before you're applying for a PhD program. Are you planning to be, for example, an English, an Americanist or British studies? Are you gonna be interested in Anglophone studies? Are you interested in digital humanities work? Are you interested in rare book librarianship or something like that? You don't have to have those things sorted out when you're just applying to a master's program yet. If you're talking about something where your goal, for example, is counseling, you need to make sure that the program has the accreditation that you need it to have. So if it's a PhD, you may need a program that's APA accredited for a clinical psychology program. At the master's level, you wanna make sure that that type of master's will let you do the kind of work you want to do because not a lot of students tell me they wanna do a master's degree in clinical psychology, which sounds great on the surface, but actually that is not a degree that will let you be in practice um, if you wanna see patients. So you wanna make sure that that's the case. Second thing is that reputations of programs are different from the reputations that they have as an institution if you're thinking about undergraduate institutions. So programs are not necessarily rated the same way and the, the reputation of the program Typically it's important for your, may, may or may not make a difference in your first job after graduate school. Um, after that, it's likely to be much more about what have you actually done. So um, why don't we start to talk about um, getting applications ready? Yes, getting the applications ready. So generally you apply directly to programs. So you're talking about faculty within a program who are reading your application rather than people in an admissions office. The ad graduate admissions office may screen applications to make sure they're complete and those kinds of things, but um, they're not the ones who are gonna be reading them at the end of the day, and they're not the ones who are gonna be making decisions about them. That's gonna be faculty within the program. You need to figure out whether or not you have to take tests. There's a GRE, which comes in a general form and a subject form. It's the graduate school equivalent of SAT, ACT, subject tests, those kinds of things. So the general GRE is the graduate school equivalent of the SAT. You do wanna do some prep for it. The GRE, the verbal section is more complicated on the assumption that you have had four more years your vocabulary. Yay! Uh, the math section is actually easier than the math section on the SAT because it's based in geometry and algebra 
And you've had another four years to forget how to do that. <laughs> Dr. Klitz in my department does a talk actually every year about the GRE and ways to prepare for it. Programs vary in whether or not they require it just as they do, colleges do with the SAT. So not all programs will require it. There is also a subject test. Not all programs will require that. And I know in psychology, typically only PhD programs are gonna be looking for a subject test and more and more of them are not looking for that either. So in addition to taking the tests, you're also gonna to need to get letters of recommendation. When you go to get letters of recommendation, a couple of just real quick notes about those. One of them is you wanna ask faculty members in person if, they will, if they're willing to write you a letter of recommendation. Um, we had the infamous case in my department several years ago where someone asked their advisor, would they write a letter of recommendation for them? And they said, oh, by the way, and could you also ask this other member of the department if they would write a letter for me too? Um, this did not go over well <laughs> with some of my colleagues. So you want to ask about, you want to ask people if they can write you a letter of recommendation. You can frame it as, can they write you a good letter of recommendation if you want. By and large, faculty are going to be relatively, on, are going to be honest if they feel like they can't. So if a faculty member says to you, and I said this to students, you know, I, I have had you for a couple of classes, but I don't feel like I really know you very well. Um, you might get a better letter from someone else because there are students I have where I can say they took this class, they got this grade, but they never said anything in class. They never talked to me outside of class. I really know nothing else about them. And that's not what makes a good letter. By and large, you want to look for faculty members who know you, who can say something about you, who know something about the skills that you would bring to a graduate program. They don't necessarily have to be all be from within your field, depending on what the graduate program specifies. So often, if you're applying to a program in English or in, you know, in psychology, it may be helpful to have a letter of recommendation from an English department faculty member who can say something about your writing skills, your critical thinking skills, because it was an upper level seminar where you did a lot of intensive work. You wanna ask people, you wanna give people a little bit of advanced notice. So minimum two weeks ahead of the first letter, please. Um, by and large, what a recommender needs from you is a copy of your resume, a transcript. It's really helpful if you're willing to highlight the courses that you took with that faculty member, not because we don't no, not because we can't look it up, but if you took a 200 level course with me, but you also took Psych 101 with me, I may not remember exactly what semester that was. And sometimes I don't remember whether it was 101 or 102. I just know I had you in an intro course and then I have to search through my records. So you make our lives a little easier if you can remind us of exactly which courses you took from us in which terms. We want a list of schools. Um, in order of due date with the soonest one first. I had a student several years ago who gave me a lovely list of schools they were applying to, um, sorted in, it turned out reverse chronological order. So I was cheerfully thinking none of them were due until 
the beginning of January. And then in December, I happened to realize there was a second page and turned it over just because I was curious and discovered that the first deadline was 24 hours from that moment. Um, so put them in the order we need them. Most of these things are online these days. You're gonna send us a link. One of the things that you're gonna do is be asked whether or not you're willing to waive your right to read the letter. You wanna check that box. And you're checking that box for two reasons. Well, primarily you're checking that box because it give, will give the graduate program the warm and fuzzy feeling that we are, we are being honest in our assessment. And you want them to have that warm and fuzzy feeling. You don't want them worrying about what is this person not saying because you didn't waive your right to see the letter. You want them to feel like we're being honest. Uh, if you're really worried about checking that box for a faculty member's recommendation, that may mean that they're not a good choice as a recommender. Might want to pick somebody else. Yeah, yeah you, you might want to pick somebody else, exactly. It is perfectly okay to remind people, check in with faculty just before the first letter is due. You can do that, some of us, me, I don't mind someone saying, you know, I just wanted to remind you, make sure, but some faculty get antsy about that. And so you can do the more polite, um, you know, the first letter is due in a couple of days. I just wanted to make sure you have everything you need. Um, do you still have the link or do you want me to resend it to you? Sort of one of those, I'm trying to be helpful as opposed to I'm trying to remind you. Yeah, there's very nice ways to ask for, um, to, yeah. to gently nudge them. The um, other, yeah, the other thing you want to do is you don't need to worry about asking for additional letters. So if you've asked us for one letter and you suddenly, or you've asked us for, you know, six letters and you've suddenly discovered two more schools that look really, really good and you want to add them to our list, but you hate to overburden us, don't worry about it. The work goes into the first letter. After the first letter, there's much less work involved for us in every subsequent letter. So it's really okay, however many you need or want, go for it. I think that, that pretty much applies to everything that you need to do, even for uh, humanities or MFA programs. Okay. Dr. I you definitely want people who can talk about the work that you have done in their courses. Okay. Dr. Truce, would you talk a little bit about whether um, a program might require writing samples or a portfolio? Yes, this is a, would, would, this would be an addition to a statement. Uh, and this is particularly common for PhD programs more than master's programs. Uh, except uh, MFA programs, let's say you want to go into creative writing or of some kind, uh, you will actually have to produce a writing sample, uh, which would mean uh, not that they want a sample of what your handwriting looks like uh, for analysis. <laughs> They'll want to see about usually 10 to 20 pages of work that you have done for a course. So you might have, for example, a research paper that you wrote uh, for Sorry, I'm getting feedback from a little thing there. Uh, it might be a, a research paper that you wrote for an upper level class. It might be an honors thesis, uh, or at least a part of your honors thesis. Sometimes they'll limit you to 20 pages. But what they'll want to see is something that demonstrates original thinking, creative thinking, ideas that you're interested in, 
research skills, very, very important to have that, uh, if you're, especially if you're going into a PhD program. If you're applying for an MFA program or something like that, they'll want to see writing in the genre that you're planning to focus on. If you want to do poetry, they'll want to see 10 to 15 pages of finished poetry uh, or uh, two or three finished short stories if you're interested in fiction writing or something like that. And this will be material you've been working on as an undergraduate and probably at, in your upper level courses. And you do not want to send copies of this with like the professor's written comments on it. You want a clean finished copy. It's all right to edit it. It's polished it. This is the time you definitely want to have your documentation perfect. Uh, and uh, everything cleaned up as much as possible. And you'll probably be sending this as a digital copy because no one actually like does anything on paper anymore. So you might need to figure out how do you actually create a PDF of multiple documents. And if you don't know how to do that, well, contact me, I'll tell you how to do it. Uh, <laughs> uh, or there'll be people around who can explain to you how to, how to Google it, you'll, you'll learn how to do that. I'm but sure you will, you will need, yeah. yes, you'll need some kind of finished Students may be them. able to coach us on that. So, um, Dr. Leonard, do you want to talk about um, science research? Do students, will they need to have samples of their um, posters or anything like that? Is that it's, unusual? It's less common for mm -hmm. that, but it can crop up in some facets of the chem biophysics world might be more likely to have an actual interview as opposed to accepting you prior to a school visitation. Mm -hmm. Depends a lot on the specific field you're in. And if you are going through some kind of on-campus interview or the you know remote analog for current times. Uh, they may ask you about research you've done, in which case having copies of things like posters or papers can be helpful. It's also really important for folks to realize that in those situations, whether it's an interview or a visit, anything you've listed on your resume, somebody might bring up with you. So if you've kind of forgotten what that research experience that you did two summers ago was all about, you might want to brush up on it a little bit just so that you can give sort of the elevator speech. You don't want to bore somebody to tears by going into every last facet of it, but can you give a 30 second, one minute summary of what you did that sounds cogent? And on um, talking points in interviews, you do want to remember that everything on your resume or CV is fair game to talk about. So you want to be um, mindful. What am I going to say if they ask me a question about this? Um, and I often have a conversation with students that might have a laundry list of activities and clubs they're in, but their schedule really doesn't permit being particularly actively involved in the group. And um, consequently, if asked about it, they're saying, well, I don't have time to go to the meetings. That could actually backfire in the impression that's being made about you, that you overcommit or can't balance your time. So I'd sooner see fewer of the activities on a, group, on a resume or, or CV that you actually have contributed substantively to, so. This concludes the first episode of the Grad School panel. Be sure to check out the second one and don't hesitate to schedule a meeting with Career Services if you have any questions.